Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 5th of September and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. Edible oil imports cross 2022 full year levels in August as El Nino and other fears kick in. Indian manufacturers brace for the festive season and so does the government. India's new venture capital foray upstream manufacturing. Delhi starts shutting down for G20 no online delivery services except for essentials. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Indian companies are bracing for the festive season as is the government. India's festive season which started off with Onam in Kerala in the third week of August seems to be a turning point of sorts at least in sentiment if not in numbers car sales are hitting new highs surging demand has taken overall passenger vehicle sales to some 358000 units for August Maruti Suzuki with saw strong domestic sales and international exports told channel CNBC TV 18 yesterday that historically The festive period contributes to some 23 to 26% of annual sales which means the industry could cross the 1 million sales milestone during this season. The company also said Onam car sales was strong. Elsewhere looking ahead Walmart's India subsidiary Flipkart said it is looking to create more than 100,000 or 1 lakh seasonal job opportunities across its supply chain to cater to demand during the festive season. Most likely other e-commerce companies at least the large ones would be doing something similar. The seasonal jobs both direct and indirect will include those for local Kirana delivery partners and women Flipkart said. And on consumer demand edible oil imports are shooting up once again in anticipation of the festive season. And finally the government of course like all governments before at this time is fearful that any mistakes in managing demand and supply for commodities and food items will kick off a firestorm. as it already happened with tomatoes and then onions but all of this of course happening during the festival season will bring the proverbial heavens down india's food secretary sanjeev chopra told bloomberg news that thanks to ample grain reserves plus an imminent new rice crop the country's situation was not worrisome normal to above normal rains are also forecast in many areas this month he said offsetting the impact of disruptions including the driest august in more than a century India the world's top rice exporter has now restricted exports of most varieties of rice it is also selling tomatoes onions and grains from state reserves to improve local supplies said bloomberg the government has taken many steps to ensure the food security of the country chopra said and as of now there were no proposals for any further export curbs he added saying that restrictions had already served their purpose Local wheat supplies are also adequate to meet demand in the world's second biggest producer and consumer according to Chopra saying that the government hadn't taken any decision yet on whether to scrap import duties a move that would make purchases from overseas more attractive in an interview to the core report 2 weeks ago pramod kumar head of the roller flower millers federation of india and also ceo of sunil agro foods said india should allow imports of some wheat and allow exports of packaged atta or flour particularly to countries with high nri populations all options are open food secretary chopra said to bloomberg we are monitoring the situation in case we feel there's any kind of requirement then the government will exercise the option which is appropriate at that point in time of course the whole idea of el nino being one scare factor is that it is tough to predict 
and which is why edible oil imports are shooting up to which we will come to momentarily elsewhere in the stock markets the sentiment turned positive globally after the us jobs data cemented hopes of a likely pause in rate hikes by the us federal reserve later this month elsewhere in the stock markets and speaking of things going up the bse sensex was up for the second day thanks somewhat to reports of a possible pause in rate hikes in the united states it closed 241 points higher at 65628 on monday and the nse nifty was up 94 points at 19529 and among stocks going up after much hammering in its first week of debut geo financial services share price now have rallied for the fifth consecutive session on monday and has now gone above its listing price to 267 rupees on the bse Geo Financial of course caused tremors in the non-bank financial services space by the mere announcement of its arrival and very little or no business to speak of at this point. The price band for the Geo Financial Services stock has increased to 20% from 5% earlier by the stock exchanges. Edible oil imports zoom up. Let's create a bit of a backdrop and let's start with inflation. Food inflation is currently close to 11% and most food items are in double digits including cereals which is rice and wheat at 13% and pulses also around 13%. The only thing keeping food inflation down is edible oils whose prices have crashed in the last year with oils and fats as the category is called holding at a negative 16.8%. So thank your stars and edible oil prices for overall food inflation staying low or for that matter your monthly food bill. but there are some changes india's edible oil imports in august rose 5% to a record 1.8 million metric tons reuters is reporting the core report further learns that imports have been so high this year that we've already hit the full year edible oil import number for 2022 by this month that's august 2023 in itself moreover as we learn india is now consuming more edible oils than ever before and most of it because we are in a sense cooking more food India consumes around 24 million tons of edible oils in a year. 10 million tons are produced domestically and the balance 14 million tons are imported at least last year. This year imports are set to touch about 16 and a half million tons, so almost 26 and a half to 27 million tons of consumption in all. So why is India importing so much edible oil? Is it a fear of something and how is that if at all linked to the broader food situation in the country, namely alongside high prices of pulses and cereals? I reached out to Atul Chaturvedi, chairman of the Asian Palm Oil Alliance as well as chairman of Renuka Sugars and began by asking him why imports of edible oil were shooting up like this. I would say to a large extent the media and the hype created in the media on the El Nino front has been one factor which has probably contributed big time to Indian imports shooting up. In fact, the Indian edible oil players possibly thought that there's no tomorrow, and they've been importing like crazy. In fact, on a very rough basis, we expect the imports into the country might actually go up by about seventeen to eighteen percent. Last year, India imported about fourteen million tons for the full year, and this year, till August, we've already imported close to fourteen million tons, and two more months still to go. So I'm sure we will end up closer to about 16.5 or 16.75 million tons, and that is going to be one of the biggest import number we've ever had. 
The reasons largely is that the Indian government has kept the edible oil duties very low and Indians had suffered big time in terms of very high edible oil prices. So when the prices came down in the international market, you had a scenario that Indians thought that this is a very good time to keep buying and buying and buying with the result that you are now importing much more than what you can possibly consume and that is one big reason. Other reason also could be that post the COVID, I think the Indian consumption story has also bounced back big time. Whether we call it as revenge consumption or increase in out-of-home consumption or whatever, but the fact still remains that the Indian consumption story is growing and growing big time on the strength of very low and very competitive edible oil prices. So when you say consumption story in this case, obviously this is not physical goods. So people are actually eating more or cooking more? Possibly consuming much more than what they have been consuming. In fact, earlier penciling and Indian consumption at around anything between 23.5 to 24 million tons. Now if we take 10 million tons as your domestic production and imports as about 16 or 16 and a half or thereabouts, we are actually looking at availability of more than 26 million tons or 26.5 million tons. So that simply means that the consumption growth this year is actually much higher than what we had earlier anticipated. And according to some people, the consumption growth could actually be hired by 10 to 12% compared to previous years, which is a big number. And you feel that this is really going into people's homes. This is not oil that's being imported and stored somewhere. There could be some oil which would be going in storage as well, but it can't be this high. Maybe the storage might have gone up marginally, but it is actually getting consumed. We have definitely a much higher carry out and much higher stock for sure. Even then, that's why I'm not penciling in 16 or 17 percent increase. I'm only penciling in 10 to 12 percent increase in the current year. Right. Now, if you were to now look at the broader food situation, you know, so we've seen most rice exports being banned, except for higher value basmati rice now. Second is wheat exports, which were banned last year itself. Import of pulses is going up. It has gone up quite sharply and almost doubled in the last three years. And we're importing from some countries. So there's a price situation, there's a demand situation, which you've talked about. And then there's this whole geopolitical situation, because by banning exports to those people who we are importing from, we are in a different kind of situation. So how are you seeing this from both within the country as well as globally? No, as a matter of fact, my take is that most of the countries are now becoming much more inward looking than what they were in the past. Banning of rice exports is a case in point, banning of wheat exports from India is a case in point. Indian consumption, as far as wheat and rice is concerned, may not have gone up that much. But the impact on the prices is very sharp for the simple reason that during the COVID period, India was giving something close to about 10 kilos of wheat per family, which has now been brought down to about 5 kilos. So for the balance 5 kilos, they will necessarily have to go to the market to pick up. So that is going to reflect on the prices. Prices as far as cereals and wheat and rice is concerned, I don't think they've gone up too much. But obviously, these are big commodities and a little bit of an impact on these commodities since 
signals across the spectrum. As far as pulses is concerned, we have uh, definitely short tour or pigeon peas, as we call, has definitely been in short supply. And this year's numbers, as far as crops is concerned, is also not all that attractive. In fact, pulses sowing is relatively down compared to what it was last year. So, to come back to the first answer that you gave, Mr. Chaturvedi, you talked about how people have started importing because of El Nino or the perceived impact of El Nino. So, are you seeing all of this come together in some ways then? You know, because finally the government is concerned about food security. The festival season has kicked off and obviously demand will increase. So, are things happening which perhaps they wouldn't have been were it not for this heightened sense of maybe insecurity? or food insecurity to be specific? Definitely, there has been some impact. The climate has been playing very front. In fact, if you look at the August figures, weathermen say that it's overall down by about 32% or thereabouts. But if you honestly look, southern India is probably down by more, anything between 60 to 70%. As far as our sugar belt is concerned, Maharashtra and Karnataka have hardly had rains in August. So all this is definitely going to impact as far as the availability is concerned. But in terms of sugar, I don't see too much of a blip because India still has a reasonable surplus. Edible oil, we've imported big time. And even today, I think the soya crop is shipping up quite all right. And if we have some rains in September, that shouldn't be a big problem. Mustard, we had a fantastic crop. So that is also available in the system, much more than what it used to be in the earlier years. I think as far as the big commodities is concerned, we don't need to fear too much. Since you mentioned sugar and you are the head of a sugar company, crushing season will start in about two months' time. So how are things looking for this crushing season across the country? As far as UP is concerned, UP looks to be perfectly all right. The rains have been just right. So UP crop is looking interesting. The problem areas this year is going to be Karnataka and Maharashtra. Because August rains have actually not been perfect. And the reports coming out from the ground level is that our crop numbers could seriously suffer. And I won't be surprised if we shave off a couple of million tons from the productions which we normally have. Right. Thank you so much for joining me, Mr. Chaturvedi. Thank you. Thank you very much. New Venture Capital Flows Indian venture capital is now zeroing in on what perhaps was always a relative strength in India, a capability to manufacture products from small to large-sized factories in areas ranging from chemicals and garments to spectacle lenses and much more. Moreover, India has untapped capacity, both in human resources and manufacturing capacity. And finally, there is increasing amounts of Indian capital to fund it all. The Indian venture ecosystem in the past has been majorly driven by Western capital, which usually determined the direction of its flow and, to some extent, recklessness in companies or startups which are either similar or direct replicas of successes elsewhere. E-commerce, ride-sharing and edtech are good examples, most of these ventures having come to grief for all concerned. Now, that's changing. To find out how and how much, I caught up with Sudhir Sethi of Chiratai Ventures, one of the oldest venture firms in India and earlier known as IDG Ventures. Chiratai started in 2006 and manages around $1.15 billion of assets in about six funds. Chiratai also claims a portfolio revenue of $3 billion today, of which 25% comes from international markets in 19 countries, it says. 
and more significantly at least from my vantage point its investee companies today have about 15 manufacturing units including grabbing some potential shifts out of china as a key focus area chiratai has also announced its fifth venture tech fund i began by asking sudeep sethi founder and chairman of chiratai ventures how his first investment was doing today before going along to his latest ones we turned 17 on september 1st it's been an amazing journey full of excitement and i think the reason why excitement exists is obviously because of the past but more so because how we see the next 10 years and 15 years for the first time in private equity and venture capital india is facing a tailwind for the last 6 7 years especially after covid we found that 70% of our companies did better than pre covid and the reason was that businesses which were losing money were shut down new products came in during the time innovation went to a high companies became more agile so did vcs and that's a very heady combination when vcs and founders get together and do the right thing overall today where we are is we manage about 1.1 billion dollars worth of aum 133 companies funded 48 exits the revenue of our companies is 3 billion and 25% comes from outside the country we also have given exits of approximately 800 billion dollars we should reach a billion next year and we are the only firm in the country to have done this 12 years in a row obviously investments is a big thing for us the first investment we made was a company called manthan in whole space of retail analytics we came out after 5 years and i still remember it's very dear to us for the simple reason that gave us good returns but more important we met the founder a very good founder atul and i think what followed was mintra what follows was flipkart in some sense and then lenskart and first cry today curefit and many many other companies effectively because india is the land of entrepreneurs there is no question about it overall right and so you said retail analytics was your first investment and is that business in general or specific still around yes i think they got merged with another company and it's under a different name but yes it's still around right okay so let me ask you about some of your manufacturing investments and you've got quite a few there and what are some of the more notable ones so i think it's important to put the manufacturing in context we in the last 7 to 8 years have had a feeling if i may say or a view that india with technology coming in and especially after 2016 when the digital public infrastructure started building up there is one element of the digital public infrastructure amongst many upi which today has 350 million people using digital payments and compared to what 70 million bread cards so effectively 5 years from now or 6 years from now we will have about 750 million people in india using digital payments now what that gives us is the ability to reach population scale in the country for new companies which have never existed before but none of the companies which we have in any form whether a business model revenue model technology or product existed before i named a few as such now if that is the case then how do you reach a billion people and the tam shot up for us the tam shot up because the targeted addressable market today is a billion people who need insurance a billion people who need loans billion people who need very healthy food as such and the list goes on 300 million students who need good education 150 million farmers 70 80 million smes in the country so if that is the case how do you reach this big tam now if you look at some of our companies or the consumer market at best if you look at even large companies like flipkart 
or Amazon, they've possibly addressed the consumer, maybe 150 million consumers in the country or thereabouts. Some of our companies like First Cry, Lenscar, and the 10 to 25, 30 million consumers. And if you can build a half a billion company with only addressing 10 to 30 million consumers in the country, the question is, how do you reach the next 30 million or the next 50 million or the next 100 million? And I'm talking about consumer as a proxy to even B2B markets. Now, if we want to address as a VC and companies want to address the next 50 million consumers, the same product doesn't work. Pricing, it doesn't work. And if, let's say, a lens card glass is at 750 rupees and the next 50 million people need this at perhaps 650 rupees or 500 rupees to increase margins, you have to focus into vertical, which is manufacturing, supply chain, logistics, and warehousing. That's where margins have to be squeezed out, not from the front end of consumer acquisition costs or reducing marketing costs. It is the back end. Now, the moment you go to back-end, manufacturing becomes very important. So you have to redesign the product and execute it through manufacturing. And then you have to go to these new markets where you have to say, look, great product for you. It's cheaper. The company is also increasing margins. And so to that extent, manufacturing in the physical world became very important. Today, out of our all our companies put together, we have 15 manufacturing units under Lenscart, under First Cry, under Global Bees, Miko, Consumer Robotic Product, and the list goes on. If I look at even food as an example, I think food is a proxy to manufacturing. The large cloud kitchens are really manufactured. You know, if you make from order to delivery 30 minutes, and out of that, if 20 minutes is spent in making a food which is ordered, and it's for 20 minutes, you, you can make it in 15 minutes or 10 minutes, then SOPs have to be applied. So, we have 15 factories. Lenscart is the world's largest manufacturing of eyeglasses in the world today. So, we have global scale manufacturing being set up in India by startups which have never existed before. And that, I think, is the future. So, as you look ahead, how do you see the composition of your portfolio changing? I mean, with what you just spoke of, the manufacturing part, and let's say what the government is trying to do, what the geopolitical kind of opportunities are offering themselves, in, like the China plus one and so on. Well, I think entrepreneurs look at what they need. Entrepreneurs are serving a consumer or a B2B customer with the right product, high quality, at the right margins, with enormous amount of quality there. Now, I don't think entrepreneurs are thinking of geopolitical issues. They're thinking of how to become a large company and survive and do well and become a leader. Steps of leadership, dominant in Indian market, and a global scale. Just to prefix the answer to your question, out of our 3 billion revenue, 25% is international revenue in 19 countries. And why global is important is because the same product which sells for 100 rupees in India can be sold outside the country for 300 rupees, purely because of pricing markets which are very different. What's an example of a product? No, I think if you take maybe eyeglasses, right? If it is 750 rupees here, it doesn't need to be 750 rupees outside the country because the costs are higher and definitely the same product which is manufactured in India, the pricing can be higher. I mean, if you look at even Apple products, they're different priced in different markets, whether it's a Japan or a US, the market's pricing is very different. So coming back, I think what we see as investing, let's take history a bit. There are three phases of investing since the last 15, 16 years. The first phase was basically more efficient companies. You know, if there was retail in the market space, physical retail, it was inefficient. And entrepreneurs came out and created vertical and horizontal efficient retail, which is online and which is stores, and now 
technology platforms going to generate. So basically, retail was a big thing. Now, later on came B2B, again, introducing efficiencies in supply chain. Then came efficiencies in manufacturing, which happened in the last six, seven years, where you saw companies, as I mentioned, like First Royal, Lensgard, Miko, and others, Global Peace, starting manufacturing units, which wouldn't improve the margins and high-end quality. You can't build a long-term company on traded products. Today, I think, is phase two and three. The phase two will run as we move forward at a scale. Phase three has come up. So I'll give you examples of phase three. There's a company called Minus Zero, which we have in Bangalore. And that Minus Zero is India's only autonomous driving company. We have a company called KB Colors, which is one of the world's few companies, few means one or two, who are extracting color out of bacteria to replace chemical colors. There's a company called Aether, which makes robotic self-learning AI arms for people who don't have upper limbs. And it's an amazing product sold worldwide. And again, the list goes on. So pure technology products, which have never existed in India before. And today, India is producing some of those which have never existed in the world. That our companies today have applied for over 100 patents, have been granted 30 patents. And that's a holy grail in terms of the quality of technology, entrepreneurship and technology coming out from it. Right. Last question. So you, perhaps among many venture capital firms in the country, have the highest proportion of domestic capital invested into you. So do you see that changing further in favor of domestic or say staying the same or reversing in coming days or months? So we started out in 2006 wanting decision making in India, being an Indian firm. We have a very strong advisory board, Mr. Ratan Tata. Chris Kobalakrishnan, Manish Choksi, Bruno Rochelle, Ken Oshinawa, Puneet Pushkarna, and a few others, Dr. Hetik from Germany. The reason why we started raising capital is because in every market, there is local capital. So let's be clear, there is local capital. China last year was 80% local capital in the venture space. Before that was 60%. What does local capital do? Local capital has experience. Local capital has built industry in the past. And to that extent, their family offices, their corporates, banks are local capital, insurance companies are local capital. So for us, for the industry, I think it's about 15%. In the last five years, India has absorbed $280 billion worth of capital in private equity and VC, exits $140 billion. We believe in the next five years, this will be something like $450 billion. And right now, Indian capital is only 15%. Most of reasons. One of them is knowledge about this asset class is low right now. We started out in this journey 2013 because we needed and international capital was not looking at India in a big way. So today for us, 50% of every fund is Indian capital. And that to me will stay for us, but the industry will go from 15% to possibly 40% in the next 10 years. Right. Sudhir, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Taking a cruise is going to be a tough one. If you were planning to go on a cruise ship sometime in the next year, bear in mind that many cities and ports don't want you. This is as much about cruise ships as it is increasingly about how people can only take that much dislocation to their way of life, commerce or no commerce. The Wall Street Journal says, in the US, port cities including Juneau, Alaska and Bar Harbor, Maine, that's the state, local governments are focusing on how to manage these travelers and the enormous ships they travel on. 
Elsewhere, residents in cities like Amsterdam and Barcelona are protesting the effects of cruise pollution and proposing bans on big ships. The debate is also happening in places like Hawaii and Venice, where residents have complained about an over-reliance on tourism, the Wall Street Journal says. So, starting next year, Junio will allow only five large ships, meaning those carrying more than 950 passengers in its port each day. It apparently began working on cruise ship limits in 2019 and formalized an agreement with the cruise industry earlier this year. So, while movement of goods across the world, particularly from China, is and will slow down, the movement of people had continued to rise. Now, turns out that similar barriers will kick in. Too much of anything is clearly not desirable. And finally, speaking of not being allowed to go somewhere, all online delivery services except medicines will be barred in the New Delhi district during the G20 summit, the Delhi police said on Monday. Essential services such as postal and medical services, sample collections by pathology labs will be allowed throughout Delhi, the police added. This is in addition to several other restrictions, including holidays being declared between September 8th and 10th. September 8th is, of course, Friday, making it a nice long weekend. Except, of course, getting out might be easier than getting in. Among those not getting into Delhi or India for the G20 will be China's Xi Jinping and Russia's Vladimir Putin. China will be represented by Premier Li Xiang, not President Xi Jinping, while Russia has confirmed that President Vladimir Putin will not be coming, suggesting that neither nation is likely to join any consensus. This also means that the two-day summit from September 9 will be dominated by the West and its allies, Reuters has said. The G20 leaders who will attend include US President Joe Biden, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, French President Emmanuel Macron, Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman and Japan's Fumio Kishida. On that note, that's it from me for today. Have a great day ahead and do visit www.thecore.in and sign up for our newsletters and go through our exclusive reporting and analysis. Bye for now. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.